This is the Bob McCown Podcast brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers online casino and sportsbook app today. Dave Hodge in for Bob. Bob will be around near the end of the show. We have Ken Hitchcock as our guest. David, uh, I, I do have to ask you, did you, did you enjoy the Grey Cup or did you enjoy Green Day? Um, I skipped the halftime. You uh, did? Why? Well, um, you got to get up from the TV at some point just to get up from the TV. Okay. And, uh, you know, I'd watch the NFL until uh, 6.30 and get up from the TV a few times then, too. Uh, boy, I, I didn't make a mistake ignoring the Bills game. Uh, I, I, knew, I knew what I was missing there. And it was nothing. Yeah. Um, but actually, I watched your Raiders uh, give Miami a bit of a a bit of a test. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. They didn't win, but and then uh, then I watched the 49ers uh, not dominate necessarily Tampa Bay, but they won. And I was all set for the Grey Cup and um, enjoyed the Grey Cup. But no, I, I did other things during uh, during the halftime, which. It seems seems longer in the Grey Cup than ever, halftime. Well, I'll tell you what. I went to the game and had a blast. It wasn't too cold. Um, great seats, very comfortable. Um, and and I'll be honest, is that you're right. the The length of time for halftime is one thing. The game goes so fast, though. It was. It really was a. You never sat there and said, "God, I wish this quarter's over." It was every time you looked at the clock, it said two fifty three left. I mean, so it was it was a fascinating game that way. And we're, we'll dissect the game a little more with McCowan later on. But uh, you know, when I was if you were thinking that the Alouettes were going to win when they had those two quarterback sneaks at the end of the first half, and they didn't get across the goal line, you figured fate was on the Bombers' side. I just don't understand. I've never coached in the CFL. I've tried to. I've never coached in the CFL. But when you have a when you have a field sixty five yards wide, don't you just want to use some speed to the outside at one point or another? But everybody well, wants to. Every everybody said ever since the tush push in Philly, everybody thinks they can quarterback sneak forever. Well, you should be able to in the CFL when the other team is a yard away. I mean, and you need a I know, yard. But, I mean, there there you go. You. Uh, it should be automatic. I was surprised the Alouettes didn't score, but I can imagine in the in, in the dressing room at halftime, the speech from somebody going something like this: "If we lose this game, that's what's going to be remembered that we didn't score yeah. at the end of the first half. If we win this game, nobody's going to remember that, and they will remember how we won it. And that's basically." what happened it turned out to be meaningless and maybe maybe just motivation for the Alouettes to come out in the second half and and uh and play better but when you watch the winnipeg quarterback uh Krukop <laughs> sneak for yeah. one yard he sneaks for five or six i know you're back to saying how did montreal not get in at the end of the half uh and i i don't question the the play call i mean i think he should score and I think that's yeah. what you should call. Yeah. I just, but he, he, he kept going to the left side. Kept going to the left side of the offensive oh. line. I just, I just, I didn't understand. That's the only thing that so you and I were heavily involved in. I think the two greatest great cups of all time, '89 and '87. Yeah. 
Um, well, this one right up there with those? Yeah, I've always thought 89 uh, is my answer. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, I wasn't there, so this will have to be close. But it was, uh, and, and I'm telling you that this would be more apparent to you than me watching on TV, but some of the hitting was ferocious. Yeah. I don't know how some of these guys got up. Uh, no, I, but I, I didn't see a real bad injury all day. And yet, whack, boy, oh boy, some of the hitting was hard. You didn't see you didn't see very many bad injuries. You also didn't see an overabundance of flags, which was well, well, that's nice. Preordained, I would think. Super Bowl, same thing. Let's not let's not spoil the game. So uh no, I mean the the one the, the, the one, uh, you know, the one-handed catch that Mac made yep. for the Alouettes. Yeah. And he, because he only had one, the other, the other arm was being held. Now yeah. he, he made the catch, but they never threw a flag, did they? No, no. <laughs> the good thing he yeah, caught it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. From football on to uh, a little bit of hockey. Ken Hitchcock was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame last week. We're going to take some time and talk to Ken about his philosophy, his career, and how to coach, and how to coach coaches. With Hall of Famer Ken Hitchcock, Dave Hodge, John Shannon on the McCowan Podcast. Hi, this is Bob McCowan for BetRivers.com. Hey, if you're looking for a sports book or casino app, you should check out the BetRivers Sports and Casino app today play all of your favorite casino games for real money anywhere and anytime plus get in the action with each sports game with hundreds of sports betting options and get ready to feel like a vip because you'll earn both loyalty level points and bonus store points on every real money wager you make you must be 19 plus available in ontario only please play responsibly if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone close to you, contact Connex Ontario at 1-866-531-2600 or speak to an advisor free of charge. BetRivers.com. Welcome back to the McCowan Podcast. Dave Hodge in for Bob today and joined by Hockey Hall of Famer Ken Hitchcock. How's that sound, Hitch? uh almost surreal john to be honest with you it's uh when you're sitting there you're you're looking at all your heroes and you're in the same hall as them it's it's uh it's a little bit overwhelming to be honest with you if you had no imagine this, you um, can prepare for uh what happens uh the weekend activities and then the actual induction but um um how did you react uh, give us uh, some special moments Dave, you know, for me, the two special moments were on, on the Saturday night, uh, we had a dinner with my family and my close friends at the keg downtown, and it was outstanding. And then the Hockey Hall of Fame brought the cup to the dinner, and that just, that overwhelmed everybody. And then Saturday or Sunday, the Blues and Stars put on an event where they flew people in, ownership, management. And that was special to, to reconnect with all those people again, training staff, everything. So those two parts of the weekend to me stood out more than anything. I, I understand the, the pomp and circumstance that goes with it, but, but for me, being able to spend time with family and friends, um, 
and being able to sp spend time with the people that I spent most of my career with uh, was exceptional, really exceptional. The, the whole concept of being uh, a few years after you've retired from coaching to, to take this accolade, Dave and I have always talked about we should we sh we should probably retire when we're twenty and then go back to work when we're fifty when we're smarter. Do, do, do you get a sense that um, I know you feel it was worth it, but uh, what you know now would have helped you so much more as a coach? Oh yeah, for sure, John. You know, I I think the thing that you know now is that um, you get to see around corners that you didn't see before, and you know so. I, I can, I know the end game. Uh, I'm a lot, if, if I went back to coaching tomorrow, I'd be a lot smarter coach than I've ever been in my life because I know in most circumstances what the end game is. And when you're first into coaching, you're so busy fighting the fight, you don't recognize the end game. But I do now, and I, I know if things are handled a certain way, this is where it ends up. And if they're handled differently, it ends up in a different direction. I know those directions now. And I think, that's why, not just because it's me and what I do for St. Louis, but having a mentor coach or having a, a an insider help your coaching staff, I think is is immense in the NHL. And I look at the things that I'm able to provide that I was lucky because I had Bob Gainey and Bob Clark, and they provided me information from a winning perspective that I value to this day. And I can give that same stuff to the Blues coaches. and. I think that stuff's really valuable. If you uh, if you go back to coaching tomorrow, you said you're not going to, are you? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> like you've said that before, Ken. Well, friends are friends, Haji. You know, and for me, um, two friends asked for my help, and so I did it in the in the last in Edmonton uh, with Peter, and in uh, uh, Dallas with Tom Gillardi, and I. Looking back on it, I, I really, I, I really enjoyed those years, but um, I did it for the right reasons, in my opinion. I went to help friends, and uh, but I, I had such a good time in Edmonton. I know we didn't make the playoffs, but I had such a good time. It gave me a new enthusiasm for young players, for star players. I was at the start of Connor and Leon's beginnings and Darnell Nurse's their beginnings and I it, it was fascinating for me to see those guys grow up would you would you manage a guy like Brett Hull differently now than you did when you when you had him John I thought I thought not not because of me but I thought the smartest thing I ever did with Brett Hull was turn him over to the rest of the players I really I I would say the last half of the year that we won the cup uh, I didn't coach him. The the players coached him. And we had exceptional players that Brett was really close to, in particular, uh, Brian Scrudland, Guy Carboneau, Mike Keane. They did a lot of the coaching. I gave them directions on what I, I kind of what we needed as a staff from Brett, but they they held him to a high level of accountability. I think that stuff really works. I think turning star players over to leadership or turning it over the veteran players is a really important thing to do if you want to get the most out of players. When I see these good players who are either being benched or sat out, that's an end game that never works. And I think turning them over to 
to the to the bulk of your lineup that's uh, in your leadership position really really helps and it takes the stress off of off of coaches it it puts the stress back on the player because he doesn't want to let his friends down um this may sound like a silly question but i have a follow-up that might make it less silly uh, how important was it to win that stanley cup For, from from a community standpoint it was critical we were we were competing for the same set of fans uh dave and and the cowboys had stumbled a little bit and there was the three of us were left grabbing this big pot of fans and and we won it over because of the way we played the way we competed and then when we won the cup everything kind of turned towards the dallas stars and i think from a sports landscape in Dallas, it was critical that we were knocking on the door. We really knocked on the door hard in 98, and then to win it in 99, and then go back in 2000, cemented the franchise for years. Well, of course, you, you wanted to win that cup, and, and you wanted to win it every year. But I'm thinking that as much as you coached to win, you coached to coach. You just loved coaching and the wins were a bonus would, would that be close to being correct yeah i can't help myself i, I <laughs> i'm standing on the driving range and i see somebody's you know because i've spent so much time with with uh teachers on the driving range i can't help myself i've, I've got to teach i've got to help somebody and you know we're we're sitting there uh, at dinner and i invite glenn anderson to dinner and and andy's got He's trying to help a team in Powell River. Well, we're sitting there in the middle of the family dinner with napkins and pens out there drawing up plays. You know, I, I can't help myself, Haji. And it's, uh, <laughs> everybody laughs about it, but once a teacher, always a teacher. And I, I love doing it. Like I, of, of everything I miss, I miss two things. I, I miss, I miss the bench and I really miss the practices. I, I really miss the practices. I thought, practices were my wheelhouse they were my time and and i i really miss not being able to do that on a regular basis i'm, I'm curious uh, you you said a a thing early on about the end game um it, it, to me the end game is winning but is it different than just winning yeah it's it's way different than just winning winning is a byproduct of the end game and to me the end game is doing things properly having the right moral compass, um, knowing that including everyone in the process is really important. That equals the win, but everybody in this league wants to win. But the only way you can win, John, is you got to include more players on your team than the opposition has. And I learned over time, especially working with Bob because of his background in Montreal, him and Doug Jarvis, their background in Montreal, I learned so much about inclusion and 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 making everybody feel part of it and making everybody feel important and how you went about doing that stuff i learned a lot from those guys and it really accelerated my growth as a coach you talked about uh, uh, the oilers uh, being um uh, special you the last team you coached uh, obviously um it looks like uh an easy team to coach when it's winning and uh, a difficult team to coach when it's losing. I suppose all teams are like that, but do, do, do they stand out for that reason? Is it, is it let Mc, 
McDavid and Dreisaitl just make your life happy or try to figure out why they can't? Well, for me, the Oilers are a perfect example of what happens when you press, when you press too much. You can see the angst in the players. You can see the anxiety in the players. And when you force the game too much, you're living on the edge. And you're not, you lose the value of what makes the game uh, uh, critical in long-term thinking. In other words, what I'm saying is um, you're, sometimes you press so hard to try to be successful that you start losing focus of what is important. To me, if you look at all the teams that are in the top of the league right now, they all do one thing well, they check. And when you check well, it, every, that's, a, that's a phase of playing defense. It's not defense, it's a phase of playing defense. But when you check well, you win. And if you don't check, you open yourself up to be vulnerable. And when you look at the top teams right now, and you look at teams that are having really successful years, like say a team like, like Washington, who, who's come out of nowhere. But in my eyes, they haven't come out of nowhere because they check so well. And when you, you look at Seattle last year, how well they check. If you do those things, good things are going to happen. But if you press too hard and you overextend yourself checking-wise, then you open yourself up to be vulnerable for odd man rushes and scoring chances like that. And I think teams like Edmonton are in that, in that vein right now. They're, they're pressing so hard that they're opening themselves up on the back end way too much. Is pressing too hard overthinking? Um, it's No, John, it's called puck staring. And I know that it's an, a, a term when you get so focused on, on trying to create and, and that energy gets there, you end up puck staring and you're not aware of the people around you, good and bad, mm -hmm. your own players and the opposition. And so you end up pinching when there's no support to pinch. You end up hanging on a blue line when people are behind you. You're, you're so focused on trying to do the right thing and you're so the puck has become such a magnet that your awareness loses focus. And when your awareness loses focus, you become really vulnerable. Well, the Oilers are one of your five uh, former teams that are not in a playoff spot right now. The other one is uh, Columbus, uh, not nearly as surprising as, as Edmonton. Um, what was your reaction to the firestorm of protests that unseated uh, your, your friend Mike Babcock? Mike and I are good friends and I'm, I'm a big Mike Babcock fan and I really believe in Mike. I look, we've, we've coached at the highest level together when the pressure and stress was through the roof and he handled it beautifully. He was calm under pressure. He was really good when it mattered the most. Um, so I feel for him. I don't really know what went on uh, other than what people tell you, but but Mike, Mike, in my, in my doings with Mike, uh, he's been nothing but excellent and being a tremendous leader and very, very calm under the most stressful situations like the Olympics were. And that's the Mike Babcock that I know. Uh, it, it, that's a, a difficult one because there are coaching in 2023 is different than coaching in 1993 or 2003 uh, how or or is it in your opinion 
It is in one big vein, John. And what I mean by that is that in coaching nowadays, you have to inform the player of the end game before you even begin to solicit the buy-in. The player needs to know what's in it for him, what benefits he's going to get from committing uh, to what you want, what sacrifices that you want. He has to know what the end game is like for him. And they will not buy in unless they know what it looks like or feels like. And you have to be able to sell the end game before you can even start the process. That's what's really changed. And it requires patience and, uh, and it requires uh, a, a, a real attitude that, that you're willing to give all of the information up front before you can even expect the player to take one step into buying into what you want. Uh, you yeah. talked about the teams that are at the top of the uh, of the standings. Um, how do you react to uh, the players who are making most of the headlines? Really, the talk of the NHL, I would suggest, is twofold. Um, three Canucks at the top of the scoring list, including a defenseman, Quinn Hughes. And uh, just one point behind is William Nylander, who has uh, the sort of start that every unsigned player dreams of. Uh, who's the individual highlight so far? Well, it's to me, it's Vancouver. It's it's the job that talk has done there. Um, uh, his candid approach uh, is refreshing. Um, I love the way Hughes is playing. I love the way uh, Peterson is playing. I love I love what I see there. Um, their team checks like Seattle did last year. They're hard on you. They're demanding uh, that they, they give up no easy ice. Um, and they've got a coach who's really candid. Um, he's not afraid to say what he feels. He's not hiding behind any political statements. He's very direct. I think it's a wonderful, refreshing approach to coaching. And I, I think they're there because of the buy-in that the players have, have been able to uh, bring together, but more important, the candidness of the coach. But it, it, that's, it's interesting you say that because you um... – it, 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 I mean, Rick Tockett in theory is an old school coach or, or, or being direct. Is that old school or because, because you've already talked about how you need to get buy-in from the players on the end game before you, you can proceed, but you know, he, he's not afraid to uh, call everybody out when it needs to be called out early in, early in the season in Philadelphia, he was, he wasted no time after a mediocre game against the Flyers of calling his players out and people reacted like it was, everyone was shocked. And then they've gone on this great tear since. Yeah. I think, I think he's an old school coach that way, which um, I'm not sure is the wrong thing to be honest with you, but where's where, where he's new is his creativity and the way he runs practices. Right. The way he runs practices to me is, 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 what you would like to see in this day and age it's it's game-like situations the tempo at the practice is really high and he really gets uh every drill every team drill he runs is a full extension of what a shift would be to me that's really smart coaching the part i like most about him is he has a standard of play for each player and if you don't meet the standard he's not afraid to point it out and i don't see what's wrong with that you can't coach 
afraid of the players. I can tell you this right now, John, if the players know that you're afraid of them, they'll take advantage of it. That's mm -hmm. just human nature. And Rick's not afraid of the players. It comes, it comes through just two days ago. You saw him call out one of his best forwards for lack of a commitment. Um, I don't mind that, you know, and I, I, I think you can do that when you know that the manager's got your back. And obviously Rick knows that, but to me, the way he runs practices is new school. And I, I love the way he does it. And the team gets to work right away. There's no horsing around. Uh, hold on, Dad, just, just to follow up. Do you believe in culture on a hockey team? Yes, but I, I believe that the guy that creates the culture is the coach, not the players. The players fall. To me, the, the way it works is general manager, coach, the leaders, then the players. And it to me, once it transfers from the general manager to the coach, the coach sets the culture for the team. The leaders follow that culture and they sell it in the room. The coach can't sell it to 23 people. It loses its, uh, its focus. It's too broad. It's too big. It's too vague. But if that the coach can set the culture by selling the four or five leaders and then they sell it to the rest of the room. Uh, Toronto fans demand I return to Nylander with, uh, with, with a different kind of, uh, kind of question. W when he's got the puck, is he as dangerous as anybody? And I'm, I'm, in, I'm including McDavid. I mean, this is dazzling what we're watching. Well, I think the thing is dazzling for me is he's a skilled player that plays reckless. Uh, like, look at the goal he scored in overtime. Like most yeah. players, most players don't cut that in like that. They, they, they know they're going to get hurt. And to me, he's a top-end skilled player that plays a reckless game. Those guys are invaluable. You, you, they're hard to find. McDavid's like that. Uh, but there's very few players that have that skill set. And to me, that's what makes him special is he's willing to go into the hard areas to score. He doesn't care. He's willing to take a very dangerous hit to try to score. I think that's a special player. He reminds me of Mike McDonald. Yes. Yeah, that's that's accurate. And and Mo was like that. You know, Mo would make plays at the net that the next morning you'd watch it on, on video and then you'd cringe because you're thinking, man, this guy could really get hurt. And and I'm the same with 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 William. I, I look at Nylander and I look at the situations. He he he's in on three or four scoring chances every game where you just know the wrong little bit of the wrong thing, he's going to get whacked in a position that he's really vulnerable in, but he doesn't care. He, he's a reckless player and you got to really respect that. Well, I, the goalies need to be a little smarter because when he uh, comes down the left side on his backhand and swoops in front of the net and moves to his forehand, it demands a poke check because otherwise he's, he's putting it in the net. I mean, the move is the same every time. But it's hard to stop, apparently. Well, it's hard to stop because he can hide the puck. Yeah. He can pull it back where you can't, you've got to go through his body to get to the puck. And to me, that's a player that's comfortable when it's really uncomfortable, Dave. You know, that, that kind of the thing, message I'm trying to get through with him. He's comfortable when it should be really uncomfortable. And that to me is a special player. So, how do you, so how, I mean, how did you deal with Madonna and, and how does, how does any coach deal with someone who is, I mean, let's face it, instinctively talented, naturally talented as a William Nylander? Do you just 
let him do what he needs to do and let his teammates manage him? I, I, you know, I, I've had a lot of experience because I not only had Medano, I had Rick Nash. Um, you know, I had a lot of top end players that that had to change their game a little bit with Mole. John, all we did instead of running him off the ice when good players came on, we put him on the ice. We hard matched Moe against the other team's top players, and his game changed immediately. He became his pride took over. He became a great 200 foot player, just like Rick did. Um, so it was more of the players we played him against, and and then we made it. We cut a deal, and they, I, what I told Moe was, I'm not going to coach you when you have the puck. I said all I'm going to tell you is when you cross the blue line make a strong play. Now, whatever that play is, you got to determine that, but I want it to be a strong play. But I said, when the other team has the puck, it's non-negotiable. This is what we, we all look the same when the opposition has the puck. And I said, I, I'm not going to negotiate off of that, but when you have the puck, all I want you to do is make a strong play and then make it deliberate from there. Were the, uh, the 99 stars, the, the best team you ever coached, um, Maybe it's an easy answer to say yes, Madonna, Neuendijk, Hull, Zuboff, Belfour. Or was there a team that didn't win that you thought was perhaps better? They weren't the best team I coached. Best mm. team I coached was the 04 Philadelphia Flyers. Okay. I'm I'm still heartbroken that we lost there. We we sustained so many injuries in that Toronto series. Um, mm. you know, if you remember, Dave. By the time we were playing game uh, four in Toronto, I think, yeah, game four in Toronto, we, we had Sammy Kapanen as our defenseman and playing 20-something minutes a night. We had lost so many players. We lost five of our top six defensemen. I thought no one was going to beat that team, and we ended up losing in game seven, 2-1 to Tampa but I thought that was the best team I've ever seen before. We we were playing perfect hockey. And then all those guys went down with the injuries in that Tampa and early in the Toronto series. And it really impacted us. And still in saying that we took Tampa to game seven. It tells you something about professional what? sports. You, you pinpoint a team that should win and it doesn't. And then a team comes along that, perhaps didn't think would win and it does and uh that makes the general manager's job the hardest of all i think because uh that guy has to plan when it's time to go and when it's time to wait and very often they make mistakes well you know what what was interesting for us was when i was in dallas bob had a meeting with us and he said what do you think we need to get to the next level. And we said to Bob, well, we need a second line left winger and we need a number three defenseman. And he said, oh, okay. And he just listened. He never said a word. He just listened. Two days later, we traded for Brian Scrudlin and Mike Keane, both fourth line <laughs> players. He knew we needed character to make the good players play harder in the locker room. He knew exactly what we needed, but he wanted our opinion. So we're trying to add more skill. He added more character and it really impacted our top players because they were held to an even higher standard. And that took us over the top. Were you, we, we, always, we always talk about you and your relationship with players and 
and uh, your in your speech at the hall, you talked about how much you uh, respected and 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 loved your players. But were you hard on managers? Were you hard on the guy that you had to deal with and saying, "I need this and I want that"? No, at least I don't think I was. I I I was a firm believer, and I coach what I've got. If he wants my opinion, whenever I had an opinion as a as a coach on a trade, I I I, I told. I told the general managers, I don't want to know who I'm giving up. I just want to, if you want to know what that player, where he fits on our team, this is where he fits. But I don't know. I don't, I don't want to know who I'm giving up because I'm going to look at that player differently the minute we have this conversation. So I never wanted to know who we were trading for. I, I, I wanted or who we were giving up to get the player we wanted. I, I just, I gave the, what I thought was an accurate evaluation of where that player that was coming in would fit in our team and then the manager had to make a decision but that comes a lot from from junior hockey like you're 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 you've got your team and you don't very often make trades in junior hockey maybe once in a while but you're 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 stuck with your team this is your team you got to make it work and I, I I came with that attitude pretty much all the time that's the voice of Ken Hitchcock Dave Hodge John Shannon on the McCallum podcast back after this Dave Hodge, John Shannon with Hockey Hall of Famer, Stanley Cup champion, Ken Hitchcock. Uh, Ken, you, uh, you you touched on just before the break about coaching in junior. Um, what was a bigger challenge, junior hockey or the NHL when it came to, to your coaching skills? Um, that's a good question. Um, junior hockey was... Uh, tougher for me, John, because um, I was way behind on the culture of junior hockey. Uh, I was way behind on, on what it took to play in the league, the, uh, the toughness of the hockey. I was way behind because I, I'd just come out of midget hockey and I'd never seen anything like this. So my first two years in, in junior were really hard. I, I mean, I know we went to the conference finals um, and, and the Western Hockey League finals, but but I I was lucky. I had a veteran group of players that showed me the way because I, I thought from you know even where to point the bus or or how to handle certain players or how to do things. I was way behind, and I found major junior my first year and a half to be a very very challenging position. Midget hockey didn't give you any trouble. <laughs> we were, you know what. <laughs> One thing, Dave, we had was Sherd Park was a city of 36,000 people. There was 2,500 kids that played minor hockey. And I had 150 kids at times, between 125 and 150 midget age players, 15 and 16, try out for one team. I had the cream of the crop. I had my choices. And it was very, very, minor hockey was big in Sherd Park. It was a bedroom community at Edmonton. And I had the right families at the right ages. And I had a lot to choose from, to be honest with you. Well, the only time you had more talent maybe was uh, at the Olympics. Um, and um, a, a question about what the NHL is trying to do with a World Cup in 2025. Uh, the league really seems stuck on how many teams, what format, uh, just how to present this, get the players on board. What would you do? 
Well, I can tell you right now, I've never seen hockey played at that level ever, ever. And I've, there's certain games that you just remember for the rest of your life. And to me, the, the Czech game in 2002, which was a tie, and then the Czech game in the 04 World Cup um, in Toronto was an incredible hockey game. Uh, I just think anytime it can be country on country, you got to take advantage of it because it's, it's a special time. I, I wasn't one of those guys that was there for the young guns and everything like that. I, I wasn't even for that. To me, it was country versus country. And I thought it was a special occasion. And um, like I said, some of the best hockey I've ever seen in my life was played at the Olympics. Can we exist in a World Cup without the Russians? No. There's yeah. got to be a way that, whether it's a different flag or whatever, there's got to be a way that these guys that play in the NHL are honored. You know, they... They've earned the right. They they they've they've sacrificed to play in the NHL. In my opinion, we've got to find a way to get them in. As much as, you know, I'm not sure how. I'm not sure what flag they can fly under. But but there's a lot of good players, and and they got to have a chance to compete also. Well, the other dilemma is, uh, you know, Germany, Switzerland, uh, Denmark. I mean, how how big a field. Uh, does it need to be to be a true World Cup? And there will be people who say too many teams uh, waters down the product. Um, I, I have a problem. Uh, I know the grandeur of the Olympics can speak for itself, but there are a lot of meaningless games and games hard to watch at uh, Olympic tournaments. So if it's the best eight or even six, uh, boy, you, you don't you never see a game that isn't. Uh, of, of top caliber. And I think that's a bigger, almost as big a, a dilemma for the NHL as what to do about Russia is, is just, if you're going to call it a world cup, how big is the world? Yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I, I can see where you're combining like Slovakia and, and, and Chechia. I can, I can see that happening, but to me, having that type of competition because every country has a different style. They play a different game. I think it's fascinating. I think the fans really get into it. And I think it, anytime you can make something like that happen, even if you've got a draw uh, from, from a couple of countries to join in, I, I, I think we've got to do it. I, I think it's special for the players. You know, the one thing, the one thing I was in four Olympic games and in all four Olympic games, the players started out in the hotel after and after two nights, they were all back in the dorms, and you know we they they gave us the option. We had a hotel room and we had a dorm room. Everybody went back to the dorms because they wanted the feeling of being part of their country. Our players had more fun with the short track speed skaters and the uh, uh, the the long track speed skaters than they did with each other. They had a great time with them, and the players miss that and they want that. They want the feeling that they're all in this thing together and they're all representing their country and they're all, they're all locked in arm in arm. And I, I think we've got to try to create that as quickly as possible. I'll, How do I'll you say this about, about uh, other countries and, and, and uh, the perception of games involving uh, players from these countries. Uh, when Matt Zuccarello stepped onto the ice for the first time in Vancouver in 2010, I and a lot of others laughed 
I mean, who was this little squirt? And and what country is this? That, nobody's laughing at Mike Matt Zuccarello anymore. And here here's a guy who who proved all the doubters wrong. Uh, and I guess the world includes other Matt Zuccarellos that need their chance. Yeah, and you know why, Dave? Because it's a one-off. Every game's an individual game. And, you, you know, with the way they play and the discipline they play with and the amount of practice they get together. Like, like we when we went to play in the World Championships or we would go play in the Olympics, these countries were so far ahead of us from a continuity standpoint. Yes, we had more talent, but they were so far ahead of us because in, in some cases, when we played in 2014, there were countries coming in there that had played 20 games together, 20 games together before the Olympics. They were, their continuity was exceptional. That's the, that's the saw off is that these guys find a way, especially when they've got a lot of players playing in Europe to cut off their schedules, to play in tournaments and to play together. And I think it's, I think it's, it, it levels out the playing field. Like these games are a lot closer because those countries have continuity that we're just starting to get revved up. I'm, I'm curious, 2002, 2010, 2014, all Olympic gold. How, how do you, when you, when somebody gives you those dates, is, is there one moment that comes to you first? One thought that comes to you first? Yeah, for in 02, it was Iserman and Lemieux because they were so banged up. They couldn't even dress inside the locker room. They had, they had DMSO on their bodies to try to il eliminate the pain, and they were, they were so banged up. They, there was a group of veteran players. It included Wayne Gretzky. Uh, he was involved in it. Uh, Mario Lemieux, um, Rob Blake. Um, Al McGinnis uh, and Steve Arzerman, those five guys led the charge that changed everything. They, they, they took over the meetings, they took over the locker room, and they took over the commitment level. In 2010, it was, again, everything's on the line, and these are the things you never forget. These are the games that we're, we're going to go into overtime, and Mike says to me, Hitch, what do we say to the players? I said, Mike, we don't say anything because Niedermeyer and Pronger have taken over the locker room. I said, go outside the door and listen to what they're saying. They took over the team again. In 2014, I know this is cocky. I thought after the second game, the tournament was over because the players, we had so many players left over from 2010. They were coaching the hockey club. They were bringing players over to the board and showing them what Mike and the rest of the coaching staff wanted they were already coaching the team as we were arriving in sochi so to me it's all about leadership it's all about taking over i'll never forget in in sochi um jonathan taves had taken five or six younger players over to the board and said this is what the coaching staff expects from you and here we are we're just arriving we're bringing our gear in and he's already over at the marking papers showing the guys what the coaches want. When the veteran leaders take over your hockey club, nothing but good happens. 
Well, we have you retired from coaching, but uh, apparently not from advising coaches uh, or Craig Berube, at least. How, how does that work? Well, I, I not not just because I'm getting to do it, but I, Dave, I think this is a really important position because I'm able to give Craig. So, for instance, we played last night. We talked this morning. Um, I'm able to give Craig information on big picture stuff that when you're fighting the day-to-day -day battles, you can't see. But to me, I work every off day with the staff. Every non-game day, I, I talk to Craig, whether it's it could be 10 minutes, it could be half an hour. And then on Tuesdays, I talk with the American League coaches. So, and it's all big picture stuff. It's not specific situations. It's more general stuff from the game before or trends that I see that he could focus on. Or maybe it's even hey, this power play is working with other teams. You should focus on it if you want to be better. And I think it's a really valuable position. I know teams like Seattle, Tip's doing that in Seattle now, but I think it's a really valuable position. Yeah, you, you can coach after you've retired coaching. I mean, it's... <laughs> You're, I'm coaching the coaches now. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> what would you, uh, and what have you said to Jay Woodcroft? Well, we've had a couple of good talks. Um, He's a heck of a coach. Um, you're always better in your second round. Uh, so I said, you got you got to eventually take stock of what went right and what went wrong. And what went wrong, you got to address because somebody's going to ask you that question when you interview for your next job. And you got to be ready for it. And I said, you got to be you got to be able to look at yourself candidly. I said, I have some ideas, Jay. And I know you have some ideas, but take your time to get that. And then get ready to be hired again because he's going to get hired again because he does such a wonderful job. But for me, you got to be candid with what went wrong. And if you're candid with what went wrong, then then you can grow as a coach. Um, how do you how do you stem that momentum? You know, the, the Pascal Vincent's going through the same thing in Columbus now. I think they're 07 and two. Um, Jay was two nine and one. I mean, it, 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 how do you stop the momentum of losing? Shorten everything up. And I mean everything. Meetings are shorter. Practices are shorter. Your voice is shorter. Let the players hammer it out in the locker room. Stay away from the locker room as much as you can. Let them figure it out. Let them help each other. But you got to create that space in that room. But everything's got to get shorter, John. Everything. But were, you, were, were you always that way? I, I wasn't until Ganey talked to me and he told me, if you keep going down the path you're going and you keep taking over, the players aren't going to do the work. I said, you got to allow them to do the work. And I learned that in 1997 because I made mistakes when we lost Edmonton in overtime, I made mistakes during that series. And he was patient enough to say, this is the way you need to handle it in a better form. And it, I, it's, it, it helped me in a ton of tough times, helped me a lot. Does uh, the idea that you'll get better the second time, uh, does that make getting fired the first time any easier? No, it still hurts, but, but you got to turn the corner, Dave, you got to turn the corner and you got to turn the corner in an honest fashion. And, it's hard to be honest with yourself because you're not sure what you did wrong, but you, if you're willing to take stock of it and what things you'd like to change, 
then you're going to be okay. If you're willing, if you're just blaming somebody else or you're b blaming it on bad luck, you're making a big mistake. Is that also a little bit more realistic to discuss difference between coaching in Canada and the United States? Oh, I never, I, I, that's what, that's why I was so happy with being able to finish in Edmonton because I hadn't coached in, in Canada and I had the time of my life there. I, I, I remember I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't go any place. Uh, I remember one time I, we came off a road trip and it was three o'clock in the morning and I drove and I, I want, I, I, I went to Tim Hortons and I picked up a coffee on the way home. And the person at Tim, Tim Hortons said, you need to fix the power play. And this is what I would do to fix the power play. This is three fifteen a.m., and I, I just I was fascinated by how the intensity level of the coverage and how everybody was so astute and very very focused on, on the hockey club. And it was it was a real shock and surprise to me, but it was a great opportunity. I have to go through that. John, uh, John will remember uh, very well. We worked with Bob Ganey in in uh, Minnesota, and uh, I asked him, uh, "How do you like it here?" And he said, "I prefer being somewhere where the only person who cares about what happened last night was someone other than me." <laughs> and uh, yeah, he preferred Montreal. <laughs> Is what he was saying. So that's what you're saying, really. That you know, it, you can you you can uh, think that the defeat last night is the worst thing in the world in some places, and nobody else even notices. But when that defeat happens in a Canadian city, you're not the only one that thinks it's awful. Oh boy, you know, there's there's been examples like I, I was one year in Edmonton, and I, I there's 20 examples I can come up with, but I, I tell you, going through that, does it ever give you an appreciation for how important the game is in Canada? Oh. So imagine being the coach of the Maple Leafs. I can't. I, I can't because <laughs> I like the 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 stress level. I, I've I've never seen hockey so focused in my life as what it was in Toronto. You you can't turn the corner anywhere and everybody knows who you are, you know. I went through the airport and I'm leaving town. Um and there was like 30 people that congratulated me and they didn't know me from Adam. And, and I, I thought, man, oh man, these people really pay attention and their, their focus is unbelievable. So as a coach, the term hero or zero, it's a hundred percent in Toronto. I can tell you that like you're, you're, you, you, you've got a real opportunity, but the pressure and stress is through the roof and you better be able to deal with that. Well, one day there will be a coach who wins the Stanley Cup for the Maple Leafs and will be immortalized. Uh, the next day they could start building the statue. But who that coach is and when that happens, who knows? Uh, you guys let me know, will you? <laughs> so send a message up. David, it, it, may not be, it may not be in our lifetime. So I just said that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know, I know, but in all of our lifetime, it'll be, uh, it'll be fascinating. Well, I'll tell you what, Ken, it's, uh, when you, we talked, when you got, uh, 
announced as going in the Hall of Fame. I was thrilled then, and we're all thrilled now. And uh, for what you've done for the game, I thank you. And for getting into the Hockey Hall of Fame, I congratulate you. Thanks, guys. This was a this was a blast being on your podcast. A real blast. Thanks for your input. Ken Hitchcock, Hockey Hall of Famer. Back after this. Welcome back. Friday and Mondays are when Mr. McCowan shows up. Today's a Monday, so here we go. McCowan's here. Robert, did you watch the Great Cup? Not much, to tell you the truth. I uh, watched football earlier in the day, and then I got kind of busy, and so I missed most of the Great Cup. One of my teams wasn't in there, so I didn't have that much interest. Well, what and 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 the Cleveland Browns. It doesn't matter now who they have at quarterback; they can win. Well, he was the kid was okay, but uh, you know, it's only scoring thirteen points isn't great, and you're not going to win every game that way. Their defense, though, it may be the best in the NFL. It's uh, really extraordinary. I mean, Baltimore scored about thirty-two points last week against them. Yeah, I think that's really unusual. And uh, this is a really great defense, and I don't know whether that's enough to win a Super Bowl, but I think it's enough to get in the playoffs. You uh, missed one of the great Grey Cup games. I know there's 110 of them, and it's pretty hard to to rate them. But, uh, John, you would agree? Oh, it was spectacular. It was it was really – I mean, it was the ebb and flow, and I thought Montreal at one point – made a terrible mistake at the end of the first half and then we're able to compensate for it in the second half and they're and you could feel their uh i'll tell you what you could feel their defense grow in confidence through the whole second half and that they could they could control the bombers yeah it was fascinating to see i um uh this is an interesting uh i don't know if it's a debate or not but I, i've always believed and yesterday uh brought it home again these guys that play in the CFL uh, are as emotional winning the Grey Cup or more so than NFL players winning the Super Bowl. Now, you can agree or disagree, but these guys aren't making a lot of money. They have to love the game or they wouldn't be doing it. And the joy on the, on the faces and in the voices of those Alouettes will, will match anything we hear out of the Super Bowl champions this year. You know, what was interesting. I mean, Montreal is one of those teams that was really ordinary at that midway point in the year. Mm-hmm. And I think what they win the last eight games or something like that. And uh, this is the kind of thing we've seen repeatedly in the game of footballing, a team that gets hot at the end of the year and goes on to win the championship. It almost doesn't matter. What happens in the first, I don't know, 15 games or so? The best team in the CFL this year was the Toronto Argonauts. And they got killed by Montreal. And then the Alouettes go and beat Winnipeg, too. So you want to get hot. That's what you want to do in the CFL. The amazing thing, too, about a great great cup game, it makes makes you forget the ebbs and flows of the CFL season. So, you know, and, and, and hearing people leaving the stadium last night was to hear them say, wow, we always have a better game than the Super Bowl. And there were a ton of people saying that. And I'm not sure that that's true anymore. But what I would say is... You're right. What's that? It means nothing the next year. 
but but what it does do is that people forget about you know fourteen thousand people at Argo Games and and uh, and and trials and tribulations in 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 uh, in Ottawa. I it's, think it means uh, nothing. The... I means nothing. We've had many great CM Great Cup games, and uh, you know people are excited when they leave, and there's fifty thousand sometimes. Yeah. And next year, the attendance is basically the same. There isn't any love of this league that can expand. There's a core of people who like CFL football, but they're fairly small, and that's it. Yeah, I think you make a mistake in trying to, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> state any rules about what, what a good Grey Cup means uh, for the benefit of the league. Um, just take it in the moment. It was a, it was a it was a great game, a great day, a That's dramatic fine. ending. Uh, the, the the surprise for me, John, was the Alouettes didn't need any offense to beat the Argos. They had so many turnovers and special teams touchdowns that we we wondered whether they had the right offense mm -hmm. uh, to win, especially against Winnipeg. And with two minutes to go, needing to go down the field and score a touchdown to win. Uh, that's that's the real accomplishment that the Alouettes provided and uh, ended any doubters about what they could do and especially what Cody Fajardo could do under that kind of pressure. The other part of me is that they're, in all the post-game stuff of their absolute adoration of Jason Moss. Well. About what Moss did and how motivated them. It was, it was a, it was a, you're, Dave, you were right about the emotion. It was fascinating to watch, and and I, I the Alouettes as a group, they'd they'd still be celebrating until they told everybody go down to the other end of the field because we're going to give you the great. They would still be there having a good time. That's how much they enjoyed the victory. You know what made me mad about the NFL is that I, I knew I should have watched C.J. Stroud. I, I mean, every week you should watch C.J. Stroud. Did you, Bob? Yeah. I mean, I know the Browns. I didn't, but he didn't have a great game, you know, Dave. Only gave him three interceptions, so it wasn't his best game by any stretch. Now they, you know, he still prevailed, so that's one thing. Three hundred uh, plus yards. Yeah, he's he's going to be a great quarterback. He might even be the MVP this year. I know. Maybe. Well, if they ever win the division, that means he's in the running. I mean, because he's going to take them there. Well, he was great at Ohio State, so there's no reason why he shouldn't be great in the pros. I can tell you that I watched him play every game, I think, over, uh, what, three years at Ohio State. He's a really, really talented player. And I'm uh, glad we had to, gave you the chance to say Ohio State. You want to predict that they win this year? or? Well, I have no idea, but, I mean, Michigan has, won't have their coach with them, and I know that probably shouldn't make very much difference because the guy can, can coach uh, – Monday to Friday, he just can't go to the games. Hopefully, that's an advantage for the Buckeyes. Ohio State is a very young team, and I'm not sure whether they're good enough yet to overcome a good Michigan team. I hope so, but I don't know. All right, you got your turkey pie for Thursday? Uh, almost, John, thank you. Almost. Wait, almost, that means no, I think. Well, no, it means I have a, a female friend who has indicated she will come over and make oh. me turkey. Wow. However, in the case that doesn't happen, I do have a frozen turkey dinner 
in the freezer. <laughs> eat, it, you so, can eat it during the Washington-Dallas game because uh, there'd be no sense watching that. Well, there's no so much sense watching. I don't watch football on, on Thanksgiving to tell oh, the truth. You don't? No, generally there are no, no games that I'm interested in. Well, San Francisco, Seattle later. That's a better game, but I, I like San Francisco, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Depends. Depends. Well, on I don't know. Maybe you get, maybe you get your friends, friends, your friends at DoorDash to deliver a turkey for you. So that'd be great. I'll check around and see who, what restaurants are uh, serving American turkey dinner. Usually, there's one or two. Yeah. All right, Usually Bob. Have one. a great day. Have a great week. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Talk to you Friday. All about Bye, boys. That's Bob McCowan, Dave Hodge, John Shannon. We'll talk to you tomorrow.